Don't look now, but Arizona basketball is proving they're as good as we thought they were and maybe better. Arizona football lost again, but that's not the big news. The big news is they're losing their D.C. And by request, a little more music talk. What the heck is new metal anyways? You're listening to the Wildcat Sports Report Podcast. It's Monday. Do you know where your basketball team is ranked? Well, if you're the Arizona men's basketball team, you're ranked 17th in the AP poll. And that's after beating a team that was seemingly a little overranked at number four. Arizona wins something called the Roman main event. And I'm afraid I think Roman is the, um, shall we say, male supplement company. You can also get hair loss stuff there, but we know what they're talking about. Uh, they beat Michigan 80-62 to in a game that... Oddly enough, never seemed that big of a blowout, but yet never seemed close at the same time, if that makes any sense. Arizona was always in control of this game after about the first five minutes and always seemed like they were cruising, but it always also seemed like the lead was suddenly three or four points more than I thought it should be. It was a kind of a weird game for Arizona, where Arizona only shot four of 21 behind the arc. Uh, Ben Matherin with two for five from behind the arc. No one else shot particularly well, including Kirk Creesa, who was just one for eight. Uh, But they took care of the basketball this time with just 10 turnovers. um, When you compare that to 23 assists on 33 made baskets, they continue to move that ball around and get guys open. And it's not that Michigan shot extremely poor. I mean, they were 43% from the field, but they were just one for 14 from behind the arc, and they did turn over the ball 15 times. But really where Arizona was was so good was just getting their big men involved. Arizona seemed to be able to get good looks, and and frankly, they shot 50% from the field, but it felt like they missed uh, some easy ones. But if you look at it, uh, Christian Coloca, who was MVP of the event with 22 points, uh, to go along with seven rebounds and four block shots. Uh, Tabellus added 13, and then when you throw in uh, Bala, only had one point. Uh, the other big stars of the game, Matherin with 16, and he was really the hot hand early that sparked Arizona. And Dallin Terry with really one of his best showings of the year. Uh, he scored 13 points, and what was impressive with him is he also had five assists, five rebounds. Uh, he was 6-7 from the field, just one of two from three-point range, and the one miss was a wide-open corner three when Arizona was pulling away. Uh, really, the only guy in the starting lineup not in double figures was Kirk Creasa, but he had a pretty good game otherwise with seven assists, four steals, no turnovers. That's what you really want from your point guard. He also had, um, shall we say, the swagger. Uh, the Athletic has a really nice article on him, but Talking some trash, which Dallin Terry did too. Uh, Dallin Terry maybe will end up becoming kind of a babyface assassin for Arizona. Blowing kisses to the Michigan crowd, all together just being a pest. And I think Creesa is going to become, as the the athletic article kind of stated, uh, one of these players Arizona fans love and the rest of the nation hates. And it's kind of funny because you look at, you know, Creesa and and they look to me in a weird way like Arizona's version of Cobra Kai. 
or like uh, the villains in a high school comedy from the 80s. They just look like they um, gang together with those thick uh, foreign accents, walking into frat parties, stealing the girls away. I can see them being villains here in the Pac-12 for a few years. Uh, but Arizona serving some notice. Again, Arizona doing some things, with Tommy Lloyd doing some things that haven't been done before. Uh, in his first five games, Lloyd is not only 5-0, and uh, beating a top-five ranked team, but averaging 30 points of victory. And that might have even been more impressive had uh, Arizona been able to hold on against Wichita State. Arizona led by as many as, I think, 14 before winning by four in double overtime. But even that game, that game was weird because I felt Arizona felt better the entire game than Michigan did, but Wichita State caught fire uh, late in that game uh, to force overtime, and Arizona uh, was able to hold on. They had enough, but Etienne kind of went crazy uh, for a few minutes span there, uh, leading the Shockers into overtime before finally uh, Arizona found the way to win that one. That was another big game uh, for Coloco. He had uh, 13 points, 11 rebounds, 4 blocks in that one. Even added 3 assists. So Coloco really playing some good basketball, as is Terry. Terry wasn't as big in the Wichita State game. You know, if there was a knock on Sean Miller, it was was player development. I think some of that was exaggerated. I think, you know, when you have so many players who are 1 and done or 2 and done, it's hard to have huge player development. You also had a rash of transfers. So who knows what a guy like Justin Simon would have done at Arizona. But I think it was fair for other guys. You know, you had a guy like, you know, Raleigh Alkins stay three years, Nick Johnson stay three years, Tarzuski stay four years, and they didn't necessarily get noticeably better the entire time. But they were pretty well-formed coming in. I mean... If you want to look at good examples of guys getting better over their their time at Arizona, I especially look at Solo Hill. You look at Gabe York. You can look at a few other guys like that, Kadeem Allen, guys who continually got better through their career. So I think the player development thing is fair but overblown. But Tommy Lloyd's reputation is as a player development coach. And I don't know whether it was the pieces put in place by Miller and his staff whether uh, we would have seen these improvements by Coloco last year had he not lost a year in the weight room due to COVID. But what we're saying is we're saying that Dallin Terry and Christian Coloco especially are much different players than they were when they got on campus for Coloco three years ago for Terry two years ago. So it's a very interesting to see that development. It appears at least now that Lloyd's reputation as a player development coach was fairly accurate. I'll be very interesting to see, though, moving forward, what happens with a guy like Adama Ball, what happens with a guy like Shane Noel, uh, what happens with some of these other guys who were here for several years, you know, Pella Larson, who has started slow, but is coming off that injury, um, because these are multi-year players. Can we see Umar Balo continue to progress? That when Coloco leaves or when Tabellus leaves, he's ready to step right in. You know, when Anderson gets here next year, where does he become in two or three years? Interestingly enough, you know, one of the other criticisms of Miller of late is style of play, especially because, you know, Tommy Ball or whatever we're calling it is so entertaining. It is up-tempo. It is high gamble. Uh, it is high risk, high reward. It's fun. 
Uh, not that I think I think it Miller gets again a bum rap sometimes because when his teams were really good, they were fun to watch. You know, those teams in fourteen and fifteen were were not boring. They they were a little more deliberate, obviously. Uh, his team with uh, Derek Williams that went to the Elite Eight was not boring. Heck, his team last year led the Pac-12 in scoring, even with the more deliberate pace. I think where maybe the bigger criticism with boring is is not offense, but defense, because it wasn't a gambling offense, because they didn't go for steals and block, because they did want to force the opponent into long possessions. That wasn't as fun to watch. But I've said, and I continue to say, I think Sean Miller is an excellent system coach who didn't always bring in the right players for his system or wasn't able to bring in the right players for his system. And Tommy Lloyd may be the same thing. Tommy Lloyd may be a system coach as well, but with his system predicated on getting out and and running and making big plays on defense, you might be able to fit a different style of player, uh, more versatility. Lute Olsen ran a similar philosophy for most of his career at Arizona, but was always tinkering. Whether it was going with three bigs or going with three guards, or he you know, fell in love with big wings eventually, which again proved, I think, to be uh, the right idea. Uh, he was always evolving kind of what he did. And if they didn't have enough bigs, heck, we'll just uh, go small. Now, I, again, I think Lloyd is going to have a preference of players. He's going to want to have long athletic players. I think he likes the European players because of the fundamentals and the fact that I think you can jump right into teaching concepts more than you have to worry about teaching uh, some of the fundamentals that sometimes, not always, get lost when players come up through the uh, travel ball circuit, which puts a premium on offense and maybe leaves out defense and some of the other fundamentals. And that's not a fair assessment necessarily. There are some programs that obviously do stress fundamentals. There are also a lot of these guys playing at high schools with excellent coaches who, who teach fundamentals. But the European style, where they bring them up so early, playing for the same club team, teaching a lot of fundamentals, drilling early can be an advantage. The bigger adjustment for those type players is getting used to the speed and athleticism of the college game. But oh, so far so good for Lloyd. I think maybe the biggest surprise for Arizona is not that they went 5-0, and but kind of how they've done it. And we've seen a little bit of a tightening of the rotation with Balo and Kim Aiken Jr. not playing a ton of minutes. Aiken Jr. seems to be kind of the, the odd man out right now. If, if we're being realistic, Arizona is going with about an eight-and-a-half-man rotation. And as we have seen, his minutes have been, for the most part, under 20 in all five games in the last two games he's combined for just 15 minutes I think a lot of people assumed when Arizona uh, had such a good showing with Aiken in the red blue game that he might be a guy who could jump over uh, some of these other guys but I think right now he seems to be a little bit the odd man out in the rotation now that could change but with Tubelis and Coloco being able to stay mostly out of foul trouble with Balo playing solid uh, and with Arizona frankly going small ball a lot because of the ability of Matherin and Terry to hit the boards and guard taller players Aiken Jr. seems to be kind of the eighth and a half man the, the ninth man in the rotation uh, but that's a nice problem 
I think, to have if you can bring a guy like Aiken off the bench but not have to rely on him. That bodes well for Arizona. Now things get a little bit interesting with the schedule. Arizona plays uh, Sacramento State uh, coming up on the 27th and then jumps into Pac-12 play. They've got games against Washington and Oregon State. Uh, The Huskies here in Tucson, Oregon State there. That's the uh, first weekend, December. But what's interesting is these are two teams are scuffling. Uh, Washington just 2-2 two and two right now. Uh, of course, we've talked about they've had losses to Northern Illinois. Uh, they have struggled to beat NAU. They struggled to beat Texas Southern. And they lost to an okay Wyoming team, so that's not, not so bad. Conversely, Oregon State has been sort of a train wreck this year. The Beavers just 1-4. They have lost four in a row. The Iowa State by 10 no shame there a loss on the road at Tulsa again no shame there but they get lost back-to-back games to Samford not Stanford and Princeton now those were one point games uh, before they get Arizona they also get Wake Forest Cal and Arizona and then they'll actually ironically enough end up playing Sacramento State as well but the Beavers who were an elite eight team last year extended Wayne Tinkle are uh, are really scuffling and they are struggling and just don't look very good at all right now that that could change but right now you have to think Arizona's schedule heading into you know the holidays in December looks pretty good until really after Oregon State you know they they get a streak here of of good teams or at least power 5 teams you know after those two Pac-12 games they do get Wyoming themselves then have to travel to Illinois and then after two directional-type schools, go into that monster part of the schedule that we've discussed here. And, and But again, at Tennessee, at UCLA, at USC, at ASU. That, to me, is really going to define, I think, Arizona's season. If they can get out of there at 2-2, two and two, again, I think that bodes very well for what they're going to do seeding-wise, whether they can be a top-three team in this league, whether they can have a top-five-type seeding. Um, anything better and suddenly you're getting very greedy anything worse it's not the end of the world because again that is a tough slate but Arizona has their eyes I think on being more than just a participant in the NSA tournament based upon this weekend a couple of observations also from Vegas really like seeing Jason Gardner and Jack Murphy on the sidelines I know Murph was here the last couple seasons but Gardner being back on the bench. Gardner's a guy I think gets overlooked a little bit because he didn't have the NBA career. But if you look at guys who really gave their all, guys who were pretty darn fun players. I mean, Jason Gardner played in a national title game. He played in another Elite Eight. He played in the Sweet 16 on a team that probably had no business being in the Sweet 16. Just a fun player who was probably born a decade too late. Uh, the days of, you know, five ten point guards were well behind him, especially with his lack of interest in defending. And Jack Murphy gets the guy who, student manager all the way to head coach now back. And I think when you combine him with, with the rest of the staff with Steve Robinson, you've got a, a very interesting staff. And when we talk about the construction of this roster, I give Sean Miller a lot of credit, but let's also give... Jack Murphy, a lot of credit. He had a lot of those ties in Europe, and now with he and Tommy Lloyd really hitting you know, Europe hard, it's going to be very interesting to see Arizona's recruiting because a lot of guys are going to kind of come out of nowhere. 
you're going to see guys commit who we don't have a lot of ideas that they're there. We might find out they're visiting, but with the European connection so crazy, you know, you want to keep guys away from pro contracts. You want to keep guys away from other schools. A lot of schools don't take the time to invest uh, in, in scouting in Europe, so they don't necessarily know who the guys are until schools like Arizona start offering. Uh, and I think that's less true today than it was a, f- a few years ago. But uh, it makes recruiting very different for this team because so many times, you know, Arizona offers a guy as a freshman or sophomore. We follow the recruitment. Uh, you know, you hope that they're going to let him. Maybe they land the early commitment, and then you have to hold on to him. But with the European players, a lot of times they bring them on campus for the visit. They commit there. Sometimes they don't even announce it for a few weeks. So I think you're going to see that continue to happen as Arizona is going to continue to recruit internationally, despite also trying to land domestic players as well, which will still be, the I think, the lifeblood of this program. Arizona football uh, with two blows this weekend. One, a, a lopsided loss to Washington State. Hard to get really angry about that one after how well they played against Utah going, playing on a short week, which, again, Washington State had to do as well. Playing in the cold weather, traveling to Pullman. You know, Arizona hung for, for a little bit, but in the end just didn't have the health, didn't have the talent. And that sounds weird because Washington State's not a whole lot more talented than Arizona, but is at key positions. Arizona did hold out some players, I think, for the ASU game, and that becomes more important. We'll talk ASU more later in the week. Uh, but the big news, Don Brown, the defensive coordinator, the quote machine, a guy I think a lot of Arizona fans have fallen in love with, uh, has accepted the head coaching job at UMass, someplace he coached previously. He is from New England, and it's a blow for Arizona. I know some people are spinning it that it's not a blow. Others are making it sound like life and death of the program, and it's really somewhere in between. I think Brown has done a remarkable job this year in most of the games. Again, they, they really struggled against Washington State. But he has kept this team far more competitive than we saw the last few years, the last couple years of Rich Rod and into the Kevin Sumlin era. Uh, Arizona has really not been blown out, blown out in too many games. They've been respectable on defense. And have actually had several very good games uh, defensively as well. He will probably take uh, linebackers coach Dodzinski with him. Uh, So the big question is, does that lead to a rash of decommitments? I don't think so. They might lose one or two players. There were a couple guys he specifically recruited. Unfortunately, maybe including the linebacker Tyler Martin. But I don't think you're going to see a rash of decommits as long as Arizona brings in a capable replacement and whether that replacement comes from within the program and I've seen Dwayne Walker's name bandied about I think that would be an interesting hire although he like Brown in his 60s uh, or it comes from outside the program I know a lot of people are already championing Joe Salavea Uh, I've seen Jimmy Lake's name thrown about the former coach at Washington who was just fired that might make things kind of interesting because Lake is a defensive backs coach as well and that would mean probably having to do something with one of the other coaches whether that would be moving a guy like Cecil to linebackers or Walker to linebackers I I just can't necessarily see that so it's gonna be really interesting and I think 
you have a chance now to see what Fish is going to do. I think he really counted on having Brown for a couple years. And that's all I think it was. I think one thing you have to look at is Brown is 66. He wasn't going to be here, I don't think, five or six years. This was probably a two or three year experiment. And now that he moves on to UMass, I think it's an interesting hire because, again, how long is he going to coach at UMass? I can't imagine it being more than a three or four year, assuming he does well. Uh, and maybe he gets re-energized, but it's hard to see him coaching deep into his 70s. But if UMass can just turn that, because that's been a horrid program since going to the FBS. Um, if they can get three solid years out of him and he can hand it off to someone else, maybe that's what they're hoping for, a transition plan and anything's better than they've been the last few years. But again, I think this is a blow for Arizona. I think the players liked him. There are some reports that players very unhappy, felt betrayed with kind of how it went down. And, and frankly, when it was announced that they couldn't wait five days to announce it after the ASU game or whatever. But uh, from a scheme standpoint, I liked what he did. I thought more often than not, the defense played, played hard, played smart. And when they did struggle, it was usually because of a lack of talent, especially, I think, uh, unfortunate, the safety position where they just don't seem to have a lot of bodies. Um, they, you know, they solved a lot of their problems throughout the year. You know, early on, we saw some real contain issues, which kind of disappeared. Uh, so I do think losing Don Brown is a blow, but it's not one that can't be overcome. But now Jed Fish has to make a good hire, and probably two good hires. Like I said, I think Brown will take uh, at least one coach with him, maybe uh, some of the younger uh, front office type coaches. And so Fish will have to really make some uh, some decisions here, and we'll see what he brings in. Does he go for an established D.C.? Does he try to bring in a young guy who might be a, even a little bit more of a recruiter? Uh, does he try to go with a minority hire? Uh, does he try to just go with a name? Does he try to go with an alum? So a lot of things at play there. Our good friend Prince of the East Side has liked the music talk. I know some others have as well. Uh, Kevin Woodman. Uh, the old host on 1290 uh, has chimed in, too, with some of his music questions. But Prince of the East Side wanted me to touch on new metal. And for those of you who may not uh, follow later music trends, new metal came from grunge. Just as grunge really supplanted hair metal, you know, bands like Nirvana and Alice in Chains really pushed bands like Poison and Bon Jovi kind of off the charts. Maybe not so much Bon Jovi. Uh, new metal emerged after grunge kind of died out, and it really was uh, the movement of the, started really in the mid-90s, but really late 90s, early 2000s. If, you, if you're looking for examples of bands, I think the, the biggest bands who, who legitimately should be categorized as new metal were Korn, uh, Limp Bizkit, The Deftones, but it also became sort of this catch-all for almost all mainstream metal at that time, and I think that's where it gets to be a misnomer. There really were three kind of sounds that made up uh, new metal, and, and it really was bands that came from the groove metal thrash sounds. As Metallica changed how thrash was sounding, other bands did so as well, and Pantera was pretty much the biggest one to come out of that movement. So you had a lot of bands who took Pantera who took sort of almost an R&B blues feel to the guitar playing, just cranked it up to 11, mixed melodic vocals with screamy vocals. Then you had the rap rock, 
And that was really, if you really want to say, it was really Anthrax and Public Enemy on the Bring the Noise song, but really popularized by Rage Against the Machine. And they get lumped in with new metal, and I think that is a complete misnomer. And then there was this almost industrial electronic version of heavy metal, and, and it kind of came from a combination of, of bands like Nine Inch Nails, like Marilyn Manson, but then they just kind of got heavier. So you really had three sounds all competing. You know, Korn was the band that kind of mixed the rhythms of rap and uh, hip-hop with sort of the sounds of thrash with these whiny vocals mixed with uh, heavy vocals. Deftones really got did that early on as well, but then found kind of their own unique sound. Limp Biscuit went full-on kind of rap rock, then almost descended into silliness, and I think that's one reason they kind of became, for lack of a better word, the nickelback of, of, of new metal. But there was a lot of good stuff. There was a lot of bad stuff. Some of it aged very well. Some of it I don't think aged well at all. But if you really want to talk about the bands that might have been most important to the creation of the new metal sound, well, I think it's really Faith No More who with their vocalist Mike Patton, again, mixed that kind of whiny vocal with some rap stuff, with some hip-hop sounds, and then the heavy metal screams. I think you got again, mentioned Pantera, Nine Inch Nails, but there really wasn't just one sound. I mean, Korn did not sound like the Deftones, who did not sound like Limp Bizkit, who did not sound like Linkin Park, who did not sound, you know, go down the list of bands. Uh, I think what happened, though, is I think so much of it became the visual style, the baggy jeans again, the dreadlocks, too much eyeliner, that some bands who just weren't very good, who were all style, no substance, got popular or got lumped in. But then there were some very good bands who felt they had to jump on the bandwagon who really weren't new metal at all. You, know, you look at a band like Static X, who I love who mixed thrash and industrial, some bands who weren't nearly as popular, who, who kind of had the sound, but again, came from more of a traditional hard rock, heavy metal place, whether that was a band like Union Underground, there was a band called Snot, who was punk mixed with sort of this sound. But the problem is you also, again, it became a parody of itself. You know, get four guys who play their instruments, get a DJ, give three of them dreads, give one of them a mohawk, uh, throw in some some crazy lighting, and you had a new metal band, much like hair metal before it, where it was like, okay, let's get a hard rock band, but let's poof up their hair, let's put on some leather, let's open up their shirts, and and sing some power ballads. Or with grunge, it was like, okay, let's take a regular hard rock band, throw on some flannel and some Doc Martens, have them get rid of their guitar solos and stare at the ground. So everything becomes a parody of itself. But I think there was some good stuff in there but i think a lot of it was the moment of time i think a lot of them tried to keep themselves relevant some did a good job but lost me corn still relevant to this day but i i they lost me when they started mixing in electronic music and and things like that uh limp biscuit lost me pretty early on when they just started getting sillier and sillier and naming their albums after you know buttholes and and euphemisms for, for male genitalia. Uh, but overall, there was some good stuff in that era. Some bands I still listen to today, although oddly enough, most of them are the defunct ones, uh, ones where either they broke up or, or someone passed away in the band. But 
there was some good stuff there, although I think the term new metal was far too broad for a genre that was very diverse, especially as bands, you know, mature. Deftones' first album sounds nothing like their later albums, you know, White Pony, which was very ethereal at times. Or, you know, you look at where Slipknot is now compared to where they were. But uh, it was a good time, and it was actually a good reintroduction to me in in the, in the modern heavy metal as I had drifted more into alternative. I still liked my old favorites, still liked the Metallicas and Megadeths and Panteras, but it really helped me rediscover heavy metal and then eventually get into more underground heavy metal, which I listen to a lot of that today. So Prince of the East Side, hope that helps. Uh, we had some discussions over the weekend on DMs, and I, I do think you're still overrating Limp Biscuit just a bit. But hey, Arizona ranked number 17 and, and ready to take on the world. Men's football looking for a new defensive coordinator. And we didn't even touch on women's basketball, who, again, uh, continue to roll with a pretty easy win against Marist on Friday night. All that said, to all of you who made the trip to Vegas, to the few of you who made the trip to Pullman, or those of you just dusted off your Jinko jeans and pulling out your old... Uh, Slipknot albums, bear down.